My name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, I met a few of you this morning um, that I felt like I hadn't seen before. Um, but if you are new here, you're a guest, I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, if you, are, you have a Bible with you or a device you use, we're going to be in Romans 13 today. So just crack your Bible and turn right, and you will eventually bump into Romans. It's going to be a very helpful passage for us. We're going to be in Romans 13, and it's going to be kind of the tip of the spear that leads us into seeing Christ uh, maybe a little bit more completely than what we're used to seeing him as. And while you're turning there, as the story goes, there was this guy in his early 30s who is having a real hard time finding his place in this world, kind of like the old Michael W. Smith song, struggling to find his place in this world. He felt hollow and aimless, um, not unique for young 30-year-old men, looking for something that would make him happy, right? trying mostly women in career, again, not unique to men in their 30s. Uh, but this guy was charming. He had some charm. He'd walk into a room, fill the room, capture the room, um, one of those guys most likely to succeed, according to who you'd ask, but he came from a broken home, had a little bit of a history. He had a distant dad. He had an incredible mom. He adored his mom. His mom adored him. She was actually a Christian as well, and she prayed for him every day, and he needed it. He needed it. A little bit of a ladies' man. He would try to fill his life with the lusts that he would carry with him. So he would start relationships, he would break relationships. Start relationships, break relationships. He even broke a marriage, had a child out of wedlock, just didn't know how to handle women, did not know how to appropriate marriage, did not know how to just handle people. And this grieved his mom. So she prayed even more for him. She was a good mom. And eventually this guy hits rock bottom and realized that maybe women in career were not going to get him all the way where he wanted to go, so he started sifting through various different philosophies and religions, even trying Christianity, just trying to fill this vacuum of meaning. He would even attempt prayer, but not convicted prayer, more of prayer that you're just trying to decide if it even works or not. Maybe you've prayed a prayer like this, or you've heard someone pray a prayer like this. It usually starts off with, Lord, if you're up there, right, he's up there, we're below here. Lord, if you're up there, I'm going to have a hard conversation. That's where this guy was at until one day, very depressed, very sad, he was walking around outside close to his home, and he heard this voice, and it was a child's voice saying one thing repeatedly. Later on, he would say he interpreted this to be the voice of the Lord in his life. And the voice said, take up and read. Take up and read. So looking around to see if there's anything close to him, he found a letter that Paul had wrote to the church of Rome. And Romans 13 is where he just literally opened up the Bible and just it fell before him. And so let's, you and I, let's take up and read and join him in Romans 13, verse 11. This is what the Lord said to this young man. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's all he read. I'm talking about Augustine. This was a long time ago, this man in his 30s. He is probably one of the most influential people in human history, right? I mean, he's one of those guys that you can trace so many lives, so many shaped lives right back to Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin, Martin Luther drank deeply from the writings and the thoughts of Augustine. It's no mistake that a guy like that, on a day like that, found a passage like this. It's just no mistake. It's almost as if it was written just for him. Fortunately for you and me, it wasn't just for him. It's for you and me as well. Also, fortunately for us, before Augustine was a heavyweight, he's just like you and me. Just a guy, a disciple, trying to grow in this thing called discipleship. That's the series we've been in for a few weeks now. And he, he would have sat in here in those younger days and have taken notes and have learned just like you and I are learning together. This is a guy that was growing and understanding that growth would be incremental. This is a guy that understood that growth would mean the Holy Spirit doing things in him. Growth, it would require understanding the gospel properly, how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to give, how to just deal with people, how to see women, how to see his time, how to see his mouth, everything. He had to learn. I mean, one of the earliest prayers appropriated and given to this guy Augustine, whether it's true or not, is grant me chastity, but not yet. What he's saying is, I want to grow, Lord, but maybe tomorrow. I've got some things I want to do today. But he is credited for saying, Lord, you've created us for yourself, and our heart is not quiet until it rests in you. But he didn't get there overnight. Going from a a, a junky prayer like, make me holy and pure, but not today, Lord. I mean, he doesn't get from there to, my heart's just going to be discontent until it finally finds root and settles down in you. So what I want to do is look at this passage that's one of the passages that I think we could say has changed human history in Romans 13 because it's got some it's got some words in there that might be a little awkward, clunky, words we don't really use today. For instance, what does it mean to make provision towards the flesh? What does that even mean? What does it mean to put on Jesus? It feels like the language is old, vague. Language that would have made sense with Augustine, but today, I mean, how do you put on a person? We live in 2023. Uh, We have artificial intelligence now and Uber Eats. We watch Yellowstone spinoffs. I mean, it's, this is, we are in a very different age than Augustine as he's banging around doing whatever they did back then. But friends, if we cannot discern ancient passages for modern disciples, we're just going to have a really hard time growing as, as a people, as a church. This Bible holds some things that are very evident in words like this that, if we're not careful, could lose their value. It might be why some of us are having a hard time growing or evangelizing or even smiling, right? Because when we read this, we don't know how to connect the dots from what God has said to a very ancient people to what it means for you and me today. So what I'd like to look at maybe is just something that you probably noticed as we were reading through the passage. And that's what in, in seminaries they would call a double imperative, right? It's a fancy word for saying we're told to do two things. 
We see a double imperative in this passage. We're told to do something in the positive, and we're told to do something in the negative. And you probably caught what it was. Put on and take off. To put on the Lord Jesus, to put down worldly, fleshly desires. To put on the armor of light, but to put off the things that followed us from our past life. To put on, put off. We're being led to do these two things. And I will say today and make the case as much as I can with the word that change cannot happen without both. You have to do both. Which again, might be why some of us struggle with growing. You can still grow without doing both but not growth in the areas that really matter. We've talked about this in recent weeks. You you don't need to put on Jesus to lose weight in the ketogenic diet. You don't. You'll lose 15 pounds. Your breath will stink. You'll be awkward in a restaurant. That's what happens. But you don't need the Holy Spirit for that. You don't have to put on Jesus to do that. You don't have to throw off the worldly sins to change your career. You don't have to do that either. You can change in a million different ways. But you can't shake anxiety off. You can't dump fear. You can't put down addictions unless you do both of these. To put off and put on. Put off and put on. You know, when I went on sabbatical in 2019, um, I was challenged by my counselor and by my coach to read through books in the first month of my sabbatical that had nothing to do with growing a church or growing as a leader. No books on how to be bigger, better, faster in any direction, right? So basically boring books, books I don't really read. You walk in and you look at my library, I don't have any of those books. I don't read fiction. If you do, I don't judge you, just not into it. I don't have any Tom Clancy or Harry Potter or anything like that. It looks, it looks like a seminary library, right? I have a lot of commentaries by dead guys and how to grow a church, and that's pretty much where my reading stops. But I did get a hold of this book in month one on the race of, in polar exploration, the race from different countries to get to the North and the South Pole. And it was a race. It was a race. So I'm already all in, right? There's a race, it's extreme, someone's likely to die. Tell me more, I wanna know more. And this is one thing that I learned. And you can still find these things out there. These polar explorers would drop every now and then a depot, a provision. They would make provision for their trip back. So what they would do is, and it didn't matter what language they spoke or what year this was, they would leave camp heavy. They'd have too many dogs, too much tobacco, too much dog food, too many sleds, too many people. And then every now and then they would stop and they would drop a bunch. And then they would speed up, drop a bunch more. Speed up and they would drop a bunch more. And they would put these flags there. Why would they do that? Because they would speed up the closer they got to the pole. And then when they turned back, they would have provisions waiting for them all the way back. Super smart. I would have never thought about that. I would have died a third out there and you'd have never heard from me again. But these are guys that had it all figured out. They would race out there, race back. It's interesting to me because this is how we handle our sins a lot of times. And I'm not taking a modern idea of what it means to make provision and trying to cram it into an ancient text. You go into the Greek and you will realize that's the exact same thing that we're reading about in Romans. That's what Paul means, making provision. He means setting aside something that you can survive on later. That's exactly how we handle our sin. We make provision depots all around us. We partially put down sin in our life, but not totally. Why? Because we might need to return to it. Why? To survive, just to make it, just to live. Making provision for the flesh is just preparing to sin. It's planning to sin. And we do this through different ways. 
right? We excuse our sin. Maybe we make excuses. Instead of being brutal with our sin, we might collaborate with it, cut a partnership deal. Maybe we'll let enough sin in our life in hopes that it doesn't embarrass us or inconvenience us. So we make a little bit of a partnership agreement. But when we lack the brutality with sin and we partially put it down, what we're really doing is hoping that we don't need it anymore. But gosh, we don't want to cut it totally off just in case we need it to survive. We make provision to the flesh. This is what Paul is talking about right here. And we do it in weird ways. Some of you have grown up gathering accountability partners in your life. If you're not familiar with what that phrase means, it just means a partner, a person, one, two, three, that will ask you hard questions. And then if they're good, whenever you're done answering, they'll ask you if you're lying to them, right? They'll ask you the questions that you need to be asked. But what we'll do sometimes is we'll gather accountability partners around us, but we kind of gather the ones that we hope never ask. We load the team a little bit, right? That way we can say we have accountability, but we don't really have accountability. Or maybe we struggle with an addiction to social media. Just, we just work out that thumb all day. We scroll, we swipe, we scroll, we swipe, and we think, that's it. i got to get done with this. I'm putting this down. It is now a sin. I do it so much. But you don't delete the account. You pause it. You, you, you hibernate it. You archive it. Whatever the app calls it, you don't dare delete it. Why? You might need to survive later on. Might need that provision, right? Maybe you forgive somebody for wronging you, but you avoid them at all cost. <laughs> right? Why? It's a provision. You laid it down. You can't totally put that away. Maybe instead of abstaining from alcohol, maybe some of us in here are not free to drink. You say, I'm going to give it up, except for the weekends, right? Then I'm going to do as much as I want, or if I'm super stressed out, or on days that end with why. But besides that, I'm giving up alcohol, right? So we make these big vows of what we're going to do, but we are less than brutal with what we know to be a sin against God. You see, partial war against sin, it allows us to feel like we're killing it, like we're putting it down. But secretly, we're a little convinced we can't live without it. So what do we do? We make provision. We protect it a little bit. You see, sin requires a brutal hand with total resolve and utter follow-through. Oh, the follow-through is so expensive, isn't it? A good example of what you'll see in the Gospels that is probably what we're depicting right now are the Pharisees. I mean, aren't, aren't they kind of the villains of the New Testament. By the way, not to get off track, but they weren't always like that, the Pharisees. There was a day when Israel was coming out of exile and coming back in to form the land. Thank God for the Pharisees. They held the law. They knew the culture. They rebuilt the culture of Israel. I mean, they were rock stars back then. Something happened though, right? And what were they doing? They were honoring the word of the law without the spirit of the law. They became very brittle people, very grumpy people, fascinated, fascinated with following and all the little specks and all the little sublines of every law. But at the same time, their heart was hard. And that's the, what it looks like. We can be so committed in some areas, can't we? I mean, don't, don't we all have our thing, our pet thing? We're just so fascinated with beating. We're so fascinated with putting this one sin down. We're so fascinated with everyone else around us, abiding by the same thing that's important to us, yet we have piles of provision all around us, everywhere. Total obedience is totally expensive. 
No doors left open, no piles left for the return home. It just requires a sheer brutality with our sin. John Owen, who was a Puritan back in the day, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. That sounds like a chart topper, doesn't it? Mortification just means killing. It's the killing of sin, the putting down of sin. It's a great read, really. But he has this one quote in there. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. All right, that's just Puritan speak. For, hey, if you want to grow, don't fool yourself unless you're trampling all over the deepest desires of your flesh. (laughs) Because you're not growing if you're not doing that. Or maybe this quote that we used last week, and I've used a hundred times before, William Grinnell, another Puritan in another work. He says this, soul, take the lust, which is the child dearest to your heart, your Isaac, the sin from which you intend to gain the greatest pleasure. Lay hands on it and offer it up. Pour out its blood before me. Run the sacrificing knife into the very heart of it and do it joyfully. Right? Uh, again, more, more, more purity more, more holiness. We, we see these guys saying pretty much the same thing. And, and by the way, this William Gurnall quote comes from Genesis. This isn't something, I mean, it looks like real crazy language right here. And it kind of is crazy language because it came right out of a crazy moment in the Bible. So I guess it's appropriate. But in Genesis 22, we, this is where we see Abram or Abraham just bringing his son up to the mountain. And listen, it's, that, that, the plan was... The game plan was the kid wasn't coming back down. He was going to sacrifice his son because the Lord told him to do it. The Lord asked him. He submitted to him that you are going to put your son down. But here's the problem. This is where the static kind of found itself in Abraham's life. God had already told Abraham that it would be through Isaac that his bloodline would grow and a nation would be built. It was so big that it couldn't be numbered. So he's kind of holding two things at once. God told me that it's going to be through this kiddo that my whole family line is going to grow so many people that you couldn't count it, and yet he's telling me to kill him. So the calculus doesn't work. We see what's going on. Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews says this in 11.19. He considered, he meaning Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did. It's fascinating. That means Abraham got to the place where he's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. God told me to kill him, so I'm going to do it. But God also told me that he would be kind of the fountainhead for the rest of this family and this nation. So I guess he's just going to raise him from the dead. I don't know how else to explain it to you. I don't know. That's a fascinating trust in the Lord. (laughs) Here's how we are meant to read this. With, With what we call gospel hindsight. Anytime you read the Old Testament, it's just a revealing of the New Testament. It is this beautiful moment where we can see old books through the lens of the gospel. Gospel hindsight. And we're meant to see a picture of God's passion for you and me because our Father in heaven did not withhold his son from us. He did not. But he raised him from the dead to extend his family lineage even to the ends of the earth. We're supposed to see the gospel in a picture like that. Besides the fact, however dear you think Isaac was to Abraham, Christ was far more to the Father because the gospel's expensive. The gospel's very expensive. Deep price tag on it. Jesus left no door open, no provisional pile to fall back upon in case God really wasn't as good as he said. So you and I as disciples, 
And to be a disciple, it means that you are being formed after someone in front of you. There's no such thing as a disciple that's being made into anything other than whoever is discipling them. A disciple's obedience is to be in the same shape as the one that disciples us. What that means for you and me is we walk over the bellies of our lusts. We lay our hands with brutality on the sins that we've allowed into our life. And we do this with the same vigor and trust of Abraham. With the same trust. Because you and I, with gospel hindsight, have a promise that God is better. God's just better. He's better than whatever this sin can bring. I mean, hear me. The happiest version of you, whether that's something that's already happened or something that's in front of you, my, my hope is that it's in front of all of us. The happiest version of you is you looking more like Jesus than you do yourself today. Right? The happier you are in the Lord, you'll find that you look more like Christ. You see, this, this double imperative to put off and put on, to put off and put on, put down and pick up, it finds you and me as an unbalanced people, more of like a lopsided people because we're usually pulled more to one extreme and then the other. What I mean by that is, is, and you probably intuit where you're at on this scale, some of us are much more inclined to put sin off than we are to put Jesus on. And some of us are much more excited to put Jesus on than we are to put sin off. But again, both are necessary for real change. Your growth... And listen carefully so no one emails me later. Your growth is not entirely a battle against sin. It's not. It's also a battle to put Christ on. It's both. It's both. Without putting on Christ, all you'll experience in putting sin down is moral change. Legalistic. You'll be a Pharisee. Pharisees were really good at this. And you've seen people like this. People that were clean on the outside just weren't very Christ-like, were they? They didn't sin. They stayed married to their first love. They show up at work every day. They don't cheat the government on their taxes. They're just not very nice, not very hospitable, not very merciful, not very thoughtful, not very missional, not very compassionate. They don't weep. They're encrusted with this sense of obedience. Their goal in life is just not sinning. That's their goal. Looking like Jesus, that's secondary. We've all seen people like this. Some of us in this room, that's how we see ourselves. We sense our own worth based around how much we don't sin. You probably did it this morning. You probably did it this week. How do I feel about myself today? Well, I don't know. How, how much sin are you committing today? The goal of life is not just not sinning. Now, that might rattle some of you, okay? I want you to hear me through this. Let's look at Matthew 12 because I understand this is a challenge, but there is scripture to back it up. Matthew 12, and I'm going to jump into verse 43. It's this crazy semi-parable that Jesus is going to teach. He says this, verse 43, and we're just going to read a couple verses. When the unclean spirit, that's just a demon, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Okay, here's the point of what's being taught here. A neutrality towards Jesus is dangerous. Just neutrality 
towards Jesus, very dangerous. I mean, the, the, the basic idea is this, der- this demon is cast out, wanders around, not comfortable, comes back, finds that there's no superior power occupying that person, recruits seven buddies, they go in, the state of the person is even worse because they've taken up residence, right? The context behind this is that Jesus is comparing this parable to the unbelieving Jews of his time, right? That's what he's using as a comparison point. Because Jesus came doing great things, miracles, he himself cast demons out of people, he fed people, he healed people, and of all the cool things he did, the things he said was even cooler, preaching the gospel, teaching. He did and said some really great things, and still they would not believe that he was Messiah. But these are a people that had a very sensitive radar to the amount of sin in their life. All they cared about is how many rules were followed. At best, they were neutral with Jesus. At worst, they were throwing rocks at him. The principle for you and me in this, because, I mean, this isn't a passage that was just useful for then and is useless now. It travels. It comports with our life today. The principle is is that ownership by sin must be replaced by an ownership by Christ. A superior power must occupy you and me. We cannot just have the weeds pulled in our life all the day and just call it a day. Can't just walk around and pull the sin out of our life and just be neutral towards Jesus. That's the principle for you and me today. Getting rid of sin alone, alone in and of itself, insufficient. Insufficient for you to grow as a disciple. You were created to be more than just a sin algorithm that hunted, searched, found, and deleted sin just for the sake of deleting sin. You were created for more than that. Moral reform without a Christ fascination does not work. You must wear Christ. You must hide in Christ. You must put him on. This is another way, and I know this is like my third Puritan to put up here. I usually, I've met my quota for the year. I'm sorry. All right, we're already in January. I'm putting my third Puritan of the day. Thomas Chalmers in his very famous sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which is over 200 years old, and yet I'm still using it. He says this, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love for the world. All right? This is, <laughs> Puritan speak, this is what he's saying. Hey, listen, there are two ways that you could get rid of sin in your life. One, either by a demonstration of the world's vanity. That just means admitting that it's just an inconvenient sin, it's not helping me, it's hurting me, God hates it, I don't want it anymore, and I'm just going to get rid of it, I'm just going to drop it. That's one way of doing it. Or by setting forth another object, even God himself, as more worthy of its attachment, so that the heart shall be prevailed upon, not to resign an old affection, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. The main idea is you cannot defeat sin just by pulling weeds. You have to have something better that grows. This is why growth might be hard for some of us, right? You're really good at pulling weeds, really bad at wearing Christ. Really good at spotting and getting rid of sin, really bad at considering, thinking for, adoring, walking in intrigue after the person of Jesus. This is, you know, Paul, he he speaks to different churches using different words of this very same thing. The reason these Puritans are talking about it, it's not because they're smarter than us, they're pulling it from the same scriptures that we are. Paul tells the church of Ephesus to put off the old self and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Created after the likeness of God. Put on Christ, though. What does that even mean? 
Such a metaphysical, weird, ethereal phrase to put on Christ, to hide in Christ, to wear him. doesn't even sound tangible. I mean, what does that look like on Tuesday afternoon? It tells the Colossian church this, and I skip around a little bit, but it'll be on the screen. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There it is again, hidden. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is the put down part. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Putting on Christ is not complicated. It just means becoming more like Jesus just means looking more like Jesus, walking like him, thinking like him. That is God's goal for you. Of all of God's goals, this one is supreme. I mean, Paul tells the Roman church, you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Predestined to be conformed to the very image of Jesus. That's what discipleship is. That's all discipleship is. Discipleship is movement towards this predestined image that is Jesus. Dallas Willard has a great definition of discipleship. He says it's the process of looking like Jesus if Jesus were you, if he were you, living in your neighborhood, married to your spouse, with your job and your bodily ailments, in your dysfunctional family, in your weirdo friends, in the news that you read every day, in the savings account that you have or don't have, What would Christ look like if he were you today? Discipleship is just becoming that person. Super simple when you put it in those terms. Listen, any goal you have in this world that is higher than pursuing the image of Christ in your life, it's not worth living for. It's just not. Listen, whatever you're trying to build in life, the perfect family, the perfect business, the perfect church, doesn't even matter. Whatever you are trying to build, you need to know that your chief need is what Paul tells the church in Philippi. Know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible you would attain the resurrection from the dead. That's our goal, to know him, to attain, to share, to suffer with him, to grow, to hide in him, to put on, to encloak ourselves with the very person that is the hero, Jesus Christ, in our life. That's what it means to put on Jesus. This is super valuable for us in the Deep South. I mean, technically, we're in the Appalachian Deep South, which is different than the Deep South. But we live in an area where repentance is held high, maybe even a little higher than putting on Jesus. We're all taught from salvation upwards how to get rid of sin, right? That's what we learn to do first. Holiness, if we're not careful, just becomes weed-pulling Something we do regardless of how much we look like Jesus, regardless of how much we think about him. You know, Mark used some choice words when he opened us up, when he started this service. He used words like being fascinated in Jesus. I I use that word a lot too, or being intrigued in Jesus. I mean, friends, that starts off our mission statement. The The very first two words of this church's mission statement is to enjoy Jesus. The very first value we have as a church is gospel fascination. It's important. It's important, especially in a land like the Deep South. 
the church, I'm afraid, has, and this is not just this church, this is every church, has a reputation of just containing moral people, but not really Christ-shaped people, rule-following people, but not people that are fascinated with Jesus, love Jesus, always talk about Jesus. So friend, if you're highly alert to the sin in your life and the lives around you, but you are not being shaped like Jesus, you're probably not growing. Have you not noticed that as you pull weeds as fast as you can, they just keep growing back, don't they? They just keep growing. Without the expulsive power of a new affection, the best you can hope for is to be a Pharisee. That's the best you can hope for, to be a very clean Pharisee, clean on the outside, and as Jesus said, full of dead men's bones on the inside. Big question for us as we start to land this is what would Jesus look like if he were you today? Different, huh? Same. I've been thinking about this all week. If Jesus was me, just a pastor of a small church in the deep Appalachian South, what would that look like? How would it change my priorities? How would it change how hurried I felt, my words? Would it change how long I stayed in some conversations? Would it change how I reacted to bad news? Would it change how I saw my bride? Would it change how I parented my kids, how I handled money, how I handled my recreation time, which I'm free to have? Would it what would it change? I need to grow into that person. It's fascinating to meditate on that, isn't it? It'd be different for all of us. Your discipleship process is becoming that person. And we do this by putting down sin and putting on Christ. Destroying the provisional piles we set up around us to protect and retreat to sin just to survive. And wearing Christ. There's plenty of room for us to repent when we square our shoulders with a passage like Romans 13. I'm right there along with Augustine. We have to repent for making life only about getting rid of sins that inconvenience us the most and cutting deals with the rest of them. We have to repent for making provisions around us because we just don't really believe God is good enough without them. We have to have them. Maybe repent for not seeing Jesus with the fascination that we have given to this world instead. Maybe even repent for not praying the prayer that sounds like, God, I need your spirit for me to see Jesus any differently than I see him now. If, if, if I'm supposed to be fascinated with Jesus, if I'm supposed to have my affections kind of grow and expand, that's something you've got to do. I don't know how to do that. How do I do that in my heart? Ruin me for anything other than Christ and Christ alone. Ruin me. I have to repent for not praying that prayer as much. And listen, if you're here or you're watching online right now, and you would say that you're probably not a Christian, or maybe you're searching, or you're somewhere and you don't even know how to put words to it. Friend, if you are not hidden in Christ, or as Luther would say, wearing the cloak of Christ, if you're not hidden in Christ, that means you're exposed. If you're not firmly planted behind his record of accomplishments, that means all you've got is your own to carry around. That's all you have left. Friend, you cannot pull all the weeds, can you? You can't. Listen to Paul as he says this, know him, know him and the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible you may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's appealing to you. He's appealing to you. 
And as you become more like Jesus in his death, which means bearing your hopes and dreams for this place alone, you will share in this resurrection. Not only then, but now. Joy can be yours. Joy can be yours. And a boring life can be something in the past.